and to think I hesitated. go to hell because we are here to do Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Welcome back. Henrik, my dear co-host, say flick clap 10 times in a row. Go. Nope, 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 nope. What's that then? <laughs> it's like uh, I, I realized that it's uh, quite of a tongue twister. Try it yourself. Flick clap, flick clap. Yeah, I failed already. Anyway, how is my co-host Henrik? Tired as hell, actually. And uh, and not feeling like doing an episode tonight at all. Like at 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 this point, I I, I am in the po- point of being where I would rather staple my dick into a box of razor braces and eat that goddamn box rather than do an episode. Sounds like something that Daniel Craig famously said after Spectre. Very good. You know, it, it's the Finnish honesty for you. <laughs> yeah. We we have gotten some feedback about the Finnish honesty here. Uh, oh, uh, we have. Get into the ring, dear listener. But, yeah, what is this podcast? Well, it's an international film podcast, meaning we do tend to watch a lot of international films. The kinds of films, you know, made out of the United States, which is not international. It's not also, also the second gimmick, which is the Bond Marathon, which we are also doing. <laughs> Welcome on board. This is the kind of film podcast where we scrutinize uh, whether it's it's actually conceivable to hide a portal to hell inside your mattress. <laughs> and you only have to ask why. <laughs> like, in God's name, why? Well, this is the opening lines of the, of the episode where you usually pro- propose the question, why did we watch today's film? And I have to really, like, I have, I have to be honest here. I have no goddamn clue <laughs> why we watched Hellraiser two because I am, I harken back to the old Vitanen Lab, Vitanen Entertainment and Networks days <laughs> when I, I I was all all about Hellraiser and you came out and you stated that you never actually liked the series. And that, that was that. I was completely fine with that. And then we started years later. We started this podcast. And all of a sudden you mentioned like, well, we could do Hellraiser episode. And I was like, yeah, well, we don't have to. No, <laughs> we, we, can, we can postpone it. We we don't have to. I remember you don't really like it. So let, let's do something else. And you are on my back that, no, no, let's do Hellraiser. Let's do Hellraiser. And eventually, finally, you know, after being clopped almost to death verbally by you... <laughs> about doing a Hellraiser, we finally do the Hellraiser episode. We, which came to bite us in the ass in the Facebook comment, comment section, but, you know, what can you do? 
And after that, I think, I thought, I honest to God, I thought that, well, this is it. Now, now we've done it and we are free of Hellraiser and there is no need for more Hellraiser. And then all of a sudden, sometimes passes and all of a sudden you start to be once again like, well, we could do the sequels. We, we could do more Hellraiser. <laughs> we could do the Hellraiser franchise. And once again, I'm tra- trying to push back against this. I, I'm trying to sweep it under the rock best I can. I'm postponing the Hellraiser ep- sequel episodes and, and I, I'm pushing on that we don't have to actually tackle those. And well, after the second one, the se- series gets kind of bad, so we can just avoid, you know, touching the franchise anymore. And once again, you ch- goddamn got start to hamper around that we should do Hellraiser sequels and we should do the franchise. And well, you know, dick me. Here we are today, touching Hellraiser 2. Henrik, who is a well-known Hellraiser fan, which uh, I am not really. When I saw these films originally, I was not that much impressed about the extremely dark world of the films. But, uh, you know, Henrik, I, 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 actually do, I actually do like the first two films. And I even have a certain kind of a soft spot for a few uh, I don't know frames shots of the third one get the fuck up <sighs> yeah but you know it has a xenobite throwing CDs <laughs> I I yeah. loathe you so much man <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this for you god damn it <laughs> we're watching these films to make this I, more tra- pleasant I, for you I I I have I have as as a as a personal <laughs> present to you, I have been avoiding Hellraiser films on this podcast the best I can. Well, tonight it's uh, Overlord Curry, me, who is taking over <laughs> again with the decisions here. And um, yeah, it's uh, we will see how long this will go and how long we can stomach this for the time of the <laughs> time of the holidays <laughs> to make things easier for us. Yeah, but they, they ain't all worthless, the rest of the sequels, right? There, there, are, there are some which are okay, and some that have kind of a good ideas in them, but but after after today's film, after after Hellbound, it kind of a, the franchise becomes a, this minefield of bad movies. Every movie has some redeeming qualities, right? Except Halloween Resurrection. Mm, I I I think we are going to like even with Hellraiser franchise, we are really trying and pushing that hypothesis you propose. I haven't even seen all of these sequels because I got so tired at I don't know number seven was it years and years ago. Mm, what, what, what was that? Deader maybe. Deader yeah. Well yeah well. You know, if you if you got off the franchise after Deader, it's well all 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 the best to you. Good for you, because after that it was Hellworld and Revelations. Yeah, like there's like a double meaning, kind of a enduring theme at least with these films. It's all about the suffering. Yeah, that that it is. That it is. <laughs> well. About this film, when did we first see it? Must have been about 2000-ish? Uh, yeah, somewhere around there, because I originally got to see this after the censorship ban on movies got lifted in Finland, and we finally got 
like R-rated material. Legally in the stores. Before that, the entire Finland was just watching movies. We we have some really spectacular examples of, of the censorship policy policy of of the of the heydays. Like for example, the Finnish release of Burning, which has all the violence cut out of it. And it's basically it's it's once again it's, it's like Friday the thirteenth rehash. Yeah, yeah your, your typical summer camp slasher horror film where the violence and the core effects are pretty much like the main thing. And in the Finnish version, all, all of the gore is cut off. I understand that uh, Hellbound was also heavily on the cutting board in Finland and in around the world. I somehow can see how that very well could be the case. Seeing the un- how exactly violent and gory the uncut version of the film is. Kind of, if you if you consider gory something that is done to wax and dolls. I, I don't know, I don't know. There still are some sequences in the film that actually make me squirm. Well, um, yeah. It's been quite a long time since I've seen this film. I had lost a lot of details of this film like how it goes i could only remember the uh, very vividly the the hell itself with its elaborate labyrinths that was the the biggest image that comes to my mind when i think about this film every time but uh, i had completely forgotten how much go is going on here and how much of an incoherent movie this can sometimes be i will be very forgiving though henrik Yeah, I I also like uh, since you mentioned it that the fact is that Hellraiser 2 is is quite hard to follow at times and there there is a lot of scene changes and plot events that happened that are re- really not that strongly laid out and which do appear quite incoherent when you are looking at lo- looking at the film. Clive Parker has returned as an executive producer, the uncredited editor of the first one, Tony Randall, is the director. He was put on the director's seat for Hellbound due to his experience with the first one by uh, a producer, I understand. It is understood also that the film was going to have a much bigger budget, but New World Pictures was in financial troubles and the budget was heavily slashed on the way, hence I would say... A lot of the effects are very similar to the first one. Yeah, the something that may have affected the budget of the film is a lot of the production changes that happened behind the scenes before the shooting started. Like for example, Michael McDowell from from the Beetlejuice writing fame was originally supposed to both write and direct the film, but just before the project could get get off the ground. Michael's partner was diagnosed with AIDS, and for for understandable reasons, Michael then backed out of the project. Diagnosed for HIV. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrible. Actually, the film was initially rated X, and there was some cutting room floor involved after that. Public opinion of the film is also kind of wavering, rather mixed, and... Uh, Maybe we will find out why when we get to the film. Would it be scene by scene? Sure, yeah, why not? All right. It has a great soundtrack. Like, it's more fleshed out, if you pardon the term. 
Captain Elliot Spencer tries to perform seance. It would have been great to see him actually to be taken by the Cenobites on screen, but Christopher Young is, has returned to do the soundtrack. Also known from this podcast from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Hellraiser 1, and now Hellraiser 2. Yeah, and this time doing the soundtrack to Hellraiser 2, it is more bombastic than it was in the first one. It is. It's more theatrical, more bombastic, as you said. I, f- I feel I-, I like this soundtrack more. It has better energy. And I feel it f- feels more less restrained, like the art- artist is able to relax and kind of understand what he's about to do right now. Less restrained is, is an interesting depiction on how-, how the soundtrack actually feels, because there is kind of something that also plays very strongly behind the scenes and ma- making of the film. Because w- when you compare these two, when, when you when you take Hellraiser and, and Hellraiser 2 kind of a side to side, Hellraiser 1 is, as a, as a film, it's much more restricted and much more controlled than, than Hellbound. But then again, on the production side, the situation is kind of completely reversed, where the shoot of, of the original was very chaotic, and now Tony Randell on the helm, the shoot was reportedly much more controlled and kind of more laid back than it was back in the Clive Parker director days. That's okay, the guy was doing his first film, right? And the guy is doing his first film here also. Oh yeah, Tony Randall. Mm. But he had previous experience. He he had something uh, some experience, but he didn't have experience on uh, actually controlling a film production. Yeah, he produced the Americanized uh, Godzilla remake, uh, Godzilla nineteen eighty five. It was based on the Japanese film The Return of Godzilla, and uh, like mentioned, was kind of supervising the first Hellraiser production. And uh, Steve White, the New World's president, then gave the green light for Randall to direct Hellbound. And, and it seems like, you know, like has been stated somewhere, Tony Randall's views on what Hellraiser is about come pretty strongly on, on the screen. And I, f- I feel that, yeah, it's very imaginative, very strong in its visual telling, could be also thanks to the DP. All in all, I can already say that I enjoy a lot of the graphic scenes here. Hellraiser... Two or uh, Randall's film, e- even though from the story perspective it was, as I've come come to understand, very heavily supervised by Parker himself, who did not take actual part in the screenplay, uh, in writing the screenplay that goes to Peter Atkins. But Atkins, at least to my knowledge, Atkins was at the time working very closely with Parker, who came up with the most of the story and was kind of a Behind Atkins's back and guiding him through the screenplay process, but Randall's film still is, at least in my opinion, it is much more darker than what was the first one, which was pretty damn dark already on its own rights. But Randall's film is much more animalistic, and and I I feel more nihilistic in in its kind of a tone. We have Oliver Smith returning. As the guy who played uh, Skinless Frank in the original, he's back here. Also plays the I am in hell, help me character, which is Frank. And the mental patient... Which is Frank. (laughs) 
and the mental patient with the delusional parasitosis. So the, the Andrew Robinson, the daddy, the MacGuffin of the film, he do- did not reprise his role as daddy. There were some daddy issues. It's a bit of a mystery what happened in every aspect, but there was an alternate script where daddy would have been in the script. Here the daddy is... Andrew Robinson was rumored to not get a good enough financial offer for his return. Some were suggesting scheduling issues. But it's been already kind of revealed, at least part of it, in the documentary Leviathan, the story of Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2, where Robinson stated that he was not a big fan of the script and decided to simply skip this film. And the writer Peter Atkins was pleased with that information because it made the narrative work better for the final product, in his opinion. I'm not sure if it did, but... Cutting off the character of Larry from the film might have actually served the film itself better. Like, it, it mm. w- w- once again, it, it removes one of those tying anchor points into the previous movie. And ge- and this way, it, it makes the character of Larry even, even more of a MacGuffin here. Because the big payoff at the end of the story arc is that Larry was frank all the time. But it at the, at the same time, it also kind, kind of a lets Hellbound be more of its own beast that does not have to carry the load of, of, of a returning character of Larry. And those ties that Larry, the character of Larry would have brought with him. Outside of basically the returning characters in, in here, I, I guess the most well-known would be William Hope, who played Carl McCree, and I I guess would be perhaps most well-known for his appearance as Lieutenant Gorman in Aliens. Oh yeah, right, that, that's true. Yeah, we get to the hospital scene, we see Kirsty once again. Kirsty utters to the police, Who the fuck are you? I'm sorry, sometimes I forget my manners. But Mr. Policeman, so did she. Yeah, well, one is a police officer and the other is, is a traumatized victim. So I, I I would say that, that you know, some leeway may be given to Kirsty here. Yeah, we, we got to the moment where we see the mattress at the attic. It's still there. Cops finding and looking for evidence, which is now working as the portal to hell this time. There are scenes about brain surgery. The way that you see this scene developing with these two doctors, it seems that these are two scientifically skeptical minds who are going to see Kirsty, and now they are in for a surprise that this uh, woman is completely crazy going on about the boxes, and uh, they would then see the boxes, but no, the other doctor here, senior doctor, actually has a collection of these boxes at home and has been studying this whole box phenomenon for years, which is, of course, a little bit too convenient. I, on my end, I, I don't know about that. Or not. You know, this doctor has presumably made it so that she, he will be in touch with Kirsty for this very reason. Yeah, this is once again. This is one of those moments where it kind of becomes hard to exactly decipher how much of the so-called Hellraiser lore is is original lore and how much is elements that have been 
implemented in into the lore after the first two stories. Like how how much of the elements are production of Clive Parker's vision and how much comes from from others who have done comic books or later sequels into the franchise. But one of the running themes themes that have surfaced after the first film and have really played a prominent part in the franchise in 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 the later comic books and in in the sequels is that there there are several kind of a gateways and several ways to open the doorways to hell and not just like it was presented in the in the original film just one box which you have to hunt for and then find in order to summon the Cenobites. and kind of you see the lay the groundwork for this more complicated network into hell being laid out here in Hellbound, with the way how the hell itself operates, and also with the fact that, for example, the film shows you that there are several puzzle boxes. Yeah, but doesn't it stay exactly the same? Because we have, instead of an attic, we have a mattress which has blood, and if you drip some more blood into it, then you can open the portal for, this time for Julia instead of Frank, and if you touch the the box in the correct way then you will unleash the Cenobites which is exactly what happens here with Tiffany and the Pinhead it is at times like in those examples that you gave yes in yes it is but but at the same time there are also, also are smaller more subtle elements that kind of already start to hint in the direction that there is something way more going on but both in hell and also outside of it. Like, for example, the whole later part of the film and what happens with the, the, the character of Dr. Channard. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, Dr. Channard just uh, walks into hell with Julia, right? Without using the box. Is that what you are looking for? Um, No, or partly yes. Partly yes. Like this, this is once again something something where where the franchise, especially in the later parts, can kind of decide what it want what it wants to do. But in in a way, Chanar does indeed use the box to actually get into hell. He just uses Tiffany as a proxy to to operate it. But basically, the whole concept of Leviathan, the whole concept of hell having a god. And the kind of a hinted notion that there is some kind of an inner power struggle going on within hell itself. The way how Leviathan kind of embraces Chanard, turns him into a Cenobite that then attacks, attacks the original four Cenobites. And the whole duel they are going to have later in the film. That all kind of a hints and leads into the direction that the franchise has has gone more strongly in in the later parts and most and especially in the comic book region well it took me as a surprise that Chanard and Pinhead would be battling against each other but then again we're talking about hell so I suppose no rules and uh, suffering has to continue in most creative ways it, even inside it, hell it, yeah even inside hell because, and once again, like I, like I said, it's hard to say how much of this is actually purely hellbound 
and how much, how much this is Clark Parker's original vision and how much this is from those who have come after Parker into the franchise. But for example, the the inner power struggles and occasional civil wars within hell itself is is a plot element that has had a huge significance in, in Hellraiser franchise. And partly, partly you can see that already in here with with Chanard and Pinhead. It is not yet on the same scale that it, that it is, in, for example, in, in the modern comic book run, where it's like real armies and battle lines within the, within the hell regions. But you, you kind of can see the first steps taken into that direction, if that's how you want to read them. Yeah, I also see funny parallels with Halloween 2, for example. First, we are introduced to the Kyle McRae, the younger doctor. And this is, in a way, Halloween 2 situation. You have a hospital where they take the main protagonist to be in the caring hands of a cute male doctor or assistant, with which she has kind of a fling or some kind of affection going on. They heroically fight the bad guy together. That and later on in when they finally reach reach hell and... Tiffany kind of visits her own personal version of hell. And there, there is, for example, there is that one clown who is juggling with his eyeballs. And there is a close-up on on the blind clown's face, like, into his eyes. In that close-up, the, like, when you have that front shot of the clown's eyeballs bleeding blood... It actually do, looks remarkably like a William Shatner mask from Halloween. I noticed the same thing. Yes, indeed. Not so that we would once again be masturbating over individual frames and one-shot <laughs> images, but this is the flick lab. That it is, and uh, then we're introduced to Tiffany, who is, uh, quote, a complete mystery, as she never speaks and just keeps shuffling boxes of all kinds. She solves puzzles, and Kirsty doesn't accept the sleeping pills from Kyle... And we are introduced to the uh, Frank, actually, who writes on the wall, I am in hell, help me with blood. Followed by with this weird shot where Kirsty is actually putting the blood on her lips. Why? Why? What's wrong with you? Well, like, she was brought into the institution right from the weird murder house of the first film. I'm quite sure that she did not have the time to take her lipstick with her. Ah... Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not the best alternative, but you know, girls gotta do what girls gotta do. That's that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, Looney Looney Cellar is something that we got to a couple of times. The doctors checking out potential candidates to be sacrificed for Julia. Uh, also, funny thing to note with the Looney Cellar is that it, 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 when you look at how how the floors are named. Within the elevator, there is, there is, they go ground basement, and then beneath basement, there is the loony cellar. Okay, is this is this drawing actually Halloween Four parallels? Now we got a loony cellar, and that's about it. <laughs> well, we 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 do have in the loony cellar. We do have that one bold guy who is desperately trying to banish. The ultimate evil. The one who, who is holding the cross and who has mm. tattooed or drawn crucifixes into his head. 
Kirsty says that she has had a visitor to Kyle. Father is suffering in hell, or so she believes. That's kind of a weird that, uh, once again, Kirsty is completely fooled by Frank. Kind of a brainless brainless uh, activity going on right here. In, in Kirsty's defense, there is no way that she can at that point yet tell that it's Frank who is sending the message. Like, to our listeners who have not seen the film, in a previous Kirsty scene, Kirsty is being visited by a mutilated corpse. Like, a body that has been skinned. There is no skin he can... She can only see the muscles and and the raw tissue. And from from, from that, that messed up bundle of flesh, you can't really say, you know, if it would be Frank or if it would, would really be her father. No worries, dear listener, if you haven't seen the first one, because this uh, beginning of the film is so filled with flashbacks from the original that it would be kind of hard not to get on board with this one without watching the first one. That it is. And I I kind of even, you know, like that. Hmm? Because while the previous on Hellraiser segment is kind of a redundant, redundant for us, since we have seen previously the first one, it still uh, it still is reminiscent of the times before all the cinematic universe nonsense when movies were allowed to, to just be you know individual movies and if you made a sequel that still was an individual movie that sequel would kind of have to have this what happened in the first film segment in order to both to remind the already existing audiences, but also to get get the new audiences on page with the sequel. And, dear listener, are you guessing what is the MacGuffin of this film? Interestingly, it is Rory, the father. Even though we never get to this MacGuffin, but, but Rory, the father, is the character that is completely driving the motivation of Kirsty and driving this film. And we never get a conclusion. It's like a very Alfred Hitchcockian version of a MacGuffin in the sense that, like Hitchcock said, MacGuffin, uh, paraphrasing, like MacGuffin is to him something that is uh, driving the plot, but is not really interesting to the audience itself. Well, it could be said about this one. I don't really give a frog's fat ass what is happening to the father, but that is driving the film. I guess nobody really is looking at Hellraiser 2 to find out what happened to Kirsty's father. Uh, no, maybe a, a few nuns that came to watch the first one. I somehow doubt that any nuns would have seen a film called Hellraiser. <laughs> Especially since the film has a weird nails in his head, BDSM bondage dude in the poster. And bondage is what you get, and we get to the house of the uh, Chadard, the other senior doctor. Not only do we have this crazy doctor who is very involved with the boxes, but also <laughs> the other kind of a very incredulous idea put on forth here that is that the younger doctor somehow, based on a partial f- phone conversation goes to the flat of Chatter to find out more what is wrong with this dude. And also, the third absolutely, absolutely ridiculous connection or plotline that, that this guy, the senior doctor, just simply makes some kind of a call and he's able to acquire this mattress. 
dude, I need some more information here. <laughs> well, this, this is the active crime scene. Well, Chenard needs the mattress from police evidence or locker in order to help help his patient. For God's sakes. <laughs> Wouldn't you handle police evidence to basically any shrink that simply calls, calls to you and says that, hey, I, I really need... I really need that piece, that ev- piece of evidence for sciences. But yeah, car breaking into Chanard's house. I I felt that that was way more believable than Chanard actually getting his hands on the mattress. Like I, when when Carl re- hears that partial phone conversation and based on that decides that he has to, in the end, essentially break into his boss's home. That actually took me less suspension of disbelief than than the notion that Chanard was indeed able to have the mattress transferred in, into his home. And very convenient, just immediately after Kirsty has been suffering these traumatic experiences. Lo and behold, we have a Dr. Chanard. Here we go. Alright, well, maybe Chanard heard about this incredible happening at the house and was intrigued and wanted to take care of Kirsty to find out more. Well, that the film very heavily hints that that actually is precisely what's going on with Chanard. Yeah, we have more flashbacks, and then the doctor has now taken the mattress to home, and he has a bunch of weird material at the house, like children of the vortex, puberty linked to psychic phenomena. Mentally disturbed dude cuts himself on the mattress that the guy has invited to his home on the mattress. Kyle almost gets busted. Julia returns. Janard's obsession with the box is introduced a bit haphazardly, maybe. Well, there is no building up to it, in my opinion. It's just there. And similarly, Kyle breaking into Janard's flat makes zero sense still, given that what we know about this character's prior. But okay, I'm willing to accept that because I'm having fun with the bloody Julia here. I kind of can see Kyle's reaction here. Kyle is obviously reacting to hearing a detailed account of what happened to Kirsty, and then trying to find some logic for Chanar's obsessive behavior towards the crime scene mattress. So in, in that sense, I, I, I can understand that Kyle at that point decides to break into Chanar's home. Mm, nah, not buying it. I, I don't know. I mean, the, the man wants police evidence for no apparent reason and he also somehow wants to hide the fact that he gets his hand in hands into the mattress hence the fact that he asks precisely that the mattress is to be brought to his home and not into the the sanitarium except so, all that you hear about the conversation over the telephone is that something like no not not to the hospital to my home thank you gracias bye Clock. So based on that, he's at the house now. Yeah, no word about mattress. I, I mean, I mean, asking asking weird murder mattresses into your home, I, I would be kind of a suspicious also. Okay, but he's making a connection with the mattress. But okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Kirsty mentions it before. True, true. Never mind then. Just so that you know, if you ever tell me that you have been buying weird murder mattresses out of eBay. I too will start seriously considering on calling the cops on you. Will you be sneaking up on my house in Warsaw? 
If I just happen to be on the neighborhood, then most definitely, yeah. I, 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 I might not be interested enough to actually buy myself a ticket to get into Poland, but you know, if the circumstances are right, you can, you can bet your sweet ass off that your back door will be busted open mysteriously when you get home. Hmm. Will you buy the plane ticket if I have Cenobites here? Well, that, of course, is completely different matter. A lot of weird shit is happening in these films. Like, this is the least of it, but Julia is now dressed up in the white costume and uh, there is kissing going on. Uh, uh, it's, I believe it's just Julia's ham-fisted attempt to make Janard feel something towards Julia, which I think is not working for Janard. He's just going with the... He's just, he's just playing along to get more answers because he needs to know every goddamn thing. I don't know, I, I took it that, that there actually is some kind of a perverse sexual tension between Janard and Juliet. Well, could be kind of reflecting on the frank Julia thing. It it kind of, kind of is mirroring that, sub, uh, that, that situation, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a relationship with, without actual feelings. It's more about the... <laughs> even though you are seeing uh, like a girl who is just covered in blood and doesn't have even the skin on yet. There is some kind of a extreme lusty sexual tension going on. Are you not trying to Im- imply that that skinned woman won't get you hard? Um, <laughs> There's I, some, something seriously wrong with you, man. I once went to Pornhub and it didn't work. <laughs> but but see, see you, 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 made, you made the mistake. You didn't go into the skinned woman section. <laughs> Oh. You need a premium access pass to actually to get into those kind of videos. That's so that I would know from personal experience, but my friends have been telling me. Okay. Kyle is willing to assist Kirsty in this great adventure against the evil Dr. Jennard. Kirsty makes the notion that Kyle really doesn't have to do this, but what does he do? He does this. And he knows that, and the moment gets kind of a rapeish. Kirsty and... Kyle are in the hospital. Yeah, Kyle puts his hand on the face of Kirsty. Kind of an uncomfortable moment. But I was happy to see that Kyle is being exited from the film quite fast. Surprisingly fast, actually. Yeah. Seeing how much much time the film actually uses to build up Kyle or, or to have him around. And how, how long the plotline of the film Hangs on Kyle, actually kind of driving the action forward, be- being the one who does the detective work, and kind of a, he- he's the only one who collects clues on what is happening at the sanitarium. I felt that the film was being really efficient here, that we get rid of this character, and then after that I was definitely with the, with the film. Not that I wasn't before, but yeah, this is like... Do, do you know this uh, German horror film where there is the main character, the mother of two boys, I believe, and uh, she looks like Julia, like face nicely packaged because she has had some kind of a surgery on the face. I, I guess you are referring to Goodnight Mommy, if if you are talking about the film where, where the yeah. mom has been, yeah, yeah, the mom has been to a hospital to get some kind of a operation done to her and she comes back home all bandaged up and the two son- boys become convinced that the mummy has been changed into someone else 
that there, there is another mm. person or being that simply claims that she is their original mom. Yeah, yeah, I I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the film. If you have a chance to check it out, dear listener, please do. It, it was okay. I wasn't with, was okay. with with the movie completely to the end. Yeah, never. I I I, I I I felt that the the original premise was interesting, and there there was a lot a lot that they could have done with it. But once it gets more to them, more hallucinatory and more kind of a trying to be brain twisty ending of the movie. I kind of started to lose my way with the movie at that point. I'm I'm with you. The victim actress in Hellbound is kind of bad at the attic, or it's not really an attic. Co- considering she should know exactly what's awaiting for her, and considering the amount of bodies that she's surrounded with, the first shot at her is like, oh, just chilling. And then in the next image, kind of screaming in terror. Julia is full again. Or almost full. There's still Kyle to take out. Kirsty and Julia meet. Good quotes. Now I'm, now I'm not only the evil stepmother, I'm the evil queen. Tiffany is brought into play with the box. So, the obvious question for an uh, audience here is what is Julia plotting at this moment? And why would she want to open the box at all? And wouldn't the Cenobites come for Julia? Later, of course, we find out that no, because Julia somehow blindly believes in making a deal with the Leviathan, just uh, delivering some victims to hell. And so they are all good. And she is happy to be where she wants to spend her time most. Well, well, like like Julia says, she is now the queen of hell. Like this is, once again, like previously mentioned, this is the kind of laying the groundwork for the later franchise t- themes of of the civil wars and and the more complex hierarchical systems within the hell itself it also kind of leans into where the franchise itself was was going on back then the idea being that they would kind of get finally get rid of pinhead and they would change the main antagonist of the franchise into Julia, and Julia was supposed to become the kind of a great evil of the later Hellraiser sequels. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder what happened to that idea. Sounds pretty decent. Well, it was kind of a combination of two things. The first one is that, well, Claire Higgins herself, even though she never actually regretted being in being in Hellraiser, but after Hellbound and between the movies. Claire kind of expressed her interest in starting to appear in movies where she can play more kind of emotional characters and appear in movies that are not so violent and so dark that as as the Hellraisers had had been. But more notably, I still believe that Claire Higgins would have been open to reappear in the franchise and continue playing her character. But more than that, the case was that the franchise and it, its fans really clued into Pinhead. And Pinhead, for obvious reasons, was the one who, from 
pretty much from all the characters within the franchise is easily the most iconic. Is the easiest to turn into an iconic horror figure. So when Hellraiser 3 was in the planning process, the producers and the production company quite soon actually disregarded the whole idea of having Julia to be, be the franchise main villain and instead kept the focus on Pinhead. Yeah, when it comes to characters, I find that the Dr. Channard here is very strong as a Cenobite. And I'm quite surprised that, according to what I know, the character was never ever used again in the franchise. Of course, it's pointless if you don't have the same actor, really. But I, I could see that there was a lot of creativity still going on there. I'm not saying that this should be any kind of a main character, but with Pinhead, I think it would have made a quite powerful couple. The possibilities sure are there. Especially when when you look at where the franchise went from here. And they got out of a downward, downward spiral that opened of, of after Hellbound. Yeah, like, common sense should have prevailed here. Just hold on to your best characters. Make the best out of several characters. You could have brought in Julia, Pinhead, and Channard, and... I don't know, maybe Kirsty as well. Kinda, yeah. Of, of course, it's hard to say where the franchise would have gone in in that case. Like, how how would you would have continued and continue, continued to build up the franchise with that set of characters? Because with with Hellraiser three, you kind of already in in the first Hellraiser, and in most definitely in Hellraiser two, you kind of see exactly how limited Pinhead is as a character. Like, he, he is a character that doesn't really have a motive to appear on any of the sequels, especially after after Hellbound. And in Hellbound, Pinhead and the original four are mm, for max 20 minutes, if, if even that much. So, and so... To keep, to keep Pinhead in the franchise, you kind of uh, would have to have to find new ways to find a motivation for him and and new ways to justify for his existence in the franchise. And as we see in Hellraiser 3, that is something that, well, the franchise really was not capable of doing. Hence the whole, uh, the complete bastardization and rewriting process of the character. Uh, that, yeah, them breaking their own rules of the franchise pretty heavily, as I remember. And not only that, but kind of making uh, Pinhead their main attraction of Hell- Hellraiser 3 kind of incapacitated for the first half of the film, as as far as memory serves. And after, the, after Hellbound Hellraiser, moving on to Hellraiser 3, the only attraction... In, in in the amusement park here is Pinhead. The whole film is being carried with Pinhead. It is, it is, and it, it's it, it is really a shame because because it, it kind of a tells you that from the production company's side there really was no courage in the producers because Pin, Pinhead as a character he is something that works great as a concept, but he is not something that you can actually build a franchise upon. Yeah. It seems like, once again, like absurd levels of laziness from the production company, where we have a situation where 
it seems that we are willing to cut the budget as much as possible to make cheap horror with low effort to get the maximum possible gain out of these franchise characters, milking the material as easily as possible with the minimum risk. So the Cenobites arrive because Tiffany has opened the box. It's re very sad to see the re they replaced the girl Cenobite actor because that was one of my clear favorites from the original. Somehow her face was really matching. Like, I really liked her face as a Cenobite there. And the Chuckler or whatever it is, uh, the Chatterer. Nicholas Vince requested eyes for the character of Chatterer to help his vision. It gets a little confusing because there's a scene removed where he would somehow receive his vision if we are to trust some sources. So this created confusion since the first time we see the Chatterer here. He is still without his vision and then with vision. Hell. Interesting vision of hell, to be sure. Uh, this always worked for me, somehow, even though it's not very traditional at all. You would be thinking of hellfires and all that, but you see an endless maze or labyrinth. I would guess that that, that is precisely the reason why it works so well, because it's not traditional. It's, it's not kind of a laying back into the so often used visuals and and tropes and cliches of what what the western very christian hell often is is perceived to be as and I instead I in here it's 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 a place of its own and it's something that you haven't yet seen and i i would say that also you know going away or or shying away from the christian imagery and, and from a whole, from a whole day, from the whole hellfire aspect of your typical hell, I even believe that that is something that that made it possible and also forced the filmmakers to be more inventive with their presentation of hell. I feel a lot of odd connections pulling me when watching this film. There was this Michael Myers mask, <laughs> which looks like at least one. There was the connection that I could see with Halloween too. There was the loon seller of Halloween 4 in a sense. I got that flashback anyway. And there's also the Nightmare on Elm Street 5, the dream child kind of baby. We, we see this infant baby sometimes on the screen. And revisiting Halloween franchise itself, like as a, as a franchise, also is a hell of an experience. <laughs> Always wanted to do that. I think we have to do that at some point, since there is going to be at least two sequels now lined up for our viewing pleasure. I, I, I think we, when it comes to Halloween and our <laughs> listeners, we have tormented the poor bastards enough already. Have we though? Have we though? It's just a sadomasochist talking. Kirstie and Tiffany wandering around. Uh, suddenly Kirsty is in a room and sees a photo of her mother. Then it's all smiles for a second there. But blood starts dripping and all goes to, well, hell again. There are a lot of these white platforms that are moving back and forth. And on top of these platforms are apparently bodies of deceased people. Or as it's put, I believe in the film, there are ghosts of some kind. When they are being touched, they disappear from vision. They are some kind of a hallucinations. Or something like that. Because they, they are very specifically for Frank. 
like all, all those quote unquote buddies are there there are something that are put there to torment Frank. Which on itself kind of is telling of, of the character of Frank since since this is his part of hell where he is supposed to kind of meet this torment and and what that torment in the end is for Frank is being constantly being teased with, with sex and never getting any. Hell seems to be a place of of rooms that really don't make any cohesive sense in any way. Would it be the kind of place where I would, you know, build my 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 base? Since you can't even trust anything here, it seems to seems that everything is once again possible here. And Frank seems to be stupid enough that even though that he seems to be enjoying this place, I would consider it as some kind of a home of his. He doesn't care that Kirsty is taking the blanket and throwing it into the candle to start the fire and the inevitable waxification of Frank, followed by Ju- Julia coming into the scene and uh, giving Frank the same line that Frank gave him before. Nothing personal, babe. I never got the impression that Frank in any way was enjoying where he was. Probably not, but he was kind of a dummy. Didn't take control of the situation. Well, he was trying to take the control, but he was distracted by Kirsty's feminine wilds. Yeah, and then Julius, and rips the heart out of Frank. Tiffany and Kirsty escape. At this point, the box has been... Uh, shape-shifted into this item that seems to be the symbol of Leviathan in the center of hell. Yeah, this diamond shape. Yeah. And Dr. Chattered now, after being put into the torments of hell by Julia, re-emerges as the evil Dr. Chattered with some pretty cool cool lines and great appearance and also nice... Nice voice effects on him. I absolutely love the voice of the dude. It's very menacing. and Plus all those stop-motion animated tentacles that he has, which are very creatively made. I feel that the whole stop-motion kind of adds a lot to the creepy factor of the character. I, I would say so also. Mm. Like there, there, there is something when you actually can really see that the effects you are seeing are practical. Even though the stop motion is a bit wonky, it's not completely seamless at times. Especially on the close-ups on the tentacle, you kind of can see this, the motion building up. You can you can see the stops in stop motion. But it, it it's still... Uh, well, for me, it still works for a great, great effect. I'm kind of amused by the fact that Kirsty thinks that she can actually challenge Hell, Leviathan, or the Cenobites in a world that kind of de facto doesn't seem to be making much sense. But she does come on top of things at the end anyway. Is creative enough to put the skin of Julia on her to cheat Dr. Channard. Which is kind of cool, but you know, there are, there are no rules here. Where do you, how do you know where you're running? To get out of hell, when do you know that everything is sealed? Why does Julia get sucked by the air vortex? Why does Julia lose her skin now? What is happening to Julia? And why is there blood dripping from 
behind the pictures? All these kind of questions and what are these ghosts? And it feels like, like we have said before, maybe there is some cohesiveness lacking here or... <clears throat> I was not actually bothered by that. In in case case of Hellraiser 2, like I, I wasn't I wasn't bothered by that. I was kind of it's it's very oh, clearly it, it is kind of, kind of a, it, it is a conscious choice from 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 the directors and 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 the writers side how, that this is the way how they want to present the the line of events in in, in the film, and this is kind of a hard notion for me to make. But to me, Hellraiser 2 knowingly aims to be kind of a dream-like. It, it operates like a dream in, in many cases. It, it jumps around. There is some kind of a hidden logic behind how, how one scene transitions in, into the next, how the characters move. And even in how the characters appear in different places, like in in the in in the end of the film when Kirsty tricks Janard by wearing Julia's skin, and when you take a look on what angle Kirsty really should, would be appearing in that moment, you you get the first shot, which is a shot at Tiffany. From the front and uh, behind her, you can see the the torture rack, which transformed Chanard into a Cenobite rising slowly, Give, giving you kind of the implication that Kirsty would be emerging from that rack. But you can also know that that's in no way possible. Firstly, because Julia's skin is is completely different place in in hell. It's in in one of the hallways. Or it's laying in one of the hallways, and also because there would really be no no way how Kirsty could get both inside and outside of the rack w- without being harmed. But Kirsty then appears from from the back of Tiffany and grabs hold of her, and you are never actually shown from what location Kirsty comes into the scene. And there, there, like there, there are a lot of these these. Implications that are given to you, which are then not go gone into full detail to explain to you how they exactly work, and, and that's okay. That that's okay to me. I I feel that that once again that is a conscious choice from the film side, kind of a, in order to operate on this dream logic, to operate like a nightmare. And usually I'm against this when 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 the films try to do this or when this is. Being evoked in in a defense of, a defense of of a horror film, this this usually being the argument that is brought up, especially in relation to to Giallo films or or Dario Argento's body of work, where you also often get get bunch of stuff that does not make any sense, and then then the audience comes uh, comes with the de- defense that Argento works on dream logic. That he's trying to to visualize his nightmares, which is something that Argento has stated that he's trying to do with his films. And I I feel that, for example, in in most of Argento's films, that effect does not play off. Like it does not work, and it's just confusing. 
and e- even a bit bullshit. But I I still do I, I I still feel that it does work in Hellraiser 2. It it works in this individual film. Like this is one of those films that actually manages to pull off pull off the nightmare aesthetics and manages to pull off the dream logic and use it effectively and use it as such that it's actually justified. Yeah, there was one moment where I felt that okay, this movie now needs to go on and start doing something new. At the moment when Julia and Dr. Channard are chatting in the hallways of hell about something. But then actually the film right away kicked into gear with something else. So I think the film does pull it off, the kind of the what the fuck factor, well throughout the film. And you're always kind of intrigued to find out more. Okay, what's next? What's what's behind room number two and then, then three and four. Okay, interesting and fascinating. Visually, it's just so interesting that I don't even actually mind what is going on. And uh, and the reason why I think that this film, that Hellraiser 2 has that effect on you, is that, unlike, for example, most of Argento's films, which are, ve- in the end, still very grounded in reality. Like, there are murder mysteries, and there is a serial killer, and there is these real-life elements in, in his movies. Hellraiser 2, on the other hand, is complete, is on the complete opposite end. Most of the film takes place in hell. The characters mm. are actively trying to reach or go into hell, and and it it goes kind of a completely wild on its presentation. It, I it think go- that's that's it because because yeah, like you said, we are in hell, so you are more accepting of what you see because you don't know what it could be. So you're fine with it yeah and because uh, and also because many of the events that 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 hellraiser 2 gives to you they are in the end pretty extreme on their own right they are either kind of a symbolic emotional torment like like for example in tiffany's hellscapes where she kind of has to see symbolic presentations of of the traumatic event of her life or then they are kind of extremely violent scenarios, like Julia being pulled out of her skin and Frank having to peel off his skin. So, because it goes into this level, because it gets so wild on what it shows to you, that is, I would say that also factors into it, into why you are so okay with with the well, they are in hell, and this is just how hell operates, excuse of the film, and why are so accepting on the logic, how the film operates, and what it actually is giving to you. Yeah, I was able to come across the uncut version of the film, where Dr. Channard's head, for example, is cut in half on screen. Oh, that's how I remember, remember it. I, I'm not sure what kind of versions are currently in circulation of the film, but... I suppose we saw the same cut. I I would believe too. Yeah, that being said, I don't I don't even know what which were the shots of concern for the censorships, but I would guess that that would be one of them. Well, that most definitely also the man who cuts himself with the razor blade, the one who hallucinates the maggots eating his flesh. I, I would say that that being 
the most grisliest image of the film, the most gnarliest moment. I, I also can see very much the censors having very much troubles with. Well, most of what Julia does in the beginning of the film, Frank beating his and tearing his skin off. Like there, there, there is a lot of material that you can very easily see being too extreme for the censors of the time. The Channard Cenobite wreaks havoc in a hospital in, inside of hell, or what seems like it. And of the reality is kind of mismatching with hell, I would say. Great quotes, and to think I hesitated, and Tiffany's first words were really well played for this film. Holy shit, upon seeing the updated Doctor. Pretty much her, also her only quotes. Yeah. Well, uh, the doctor is taken care of with a kiss by Kirsty, dressed up in the skin of Julia. So Dr. Chattard kind of commits suicide <laughs> in a sense. Because, well, he manages to attach a bunch of his knives to the ground. And then the big thing that is the, the big penis looking fallacial kind of yeah, the pe- penis tentacle that Channard uses to move around. Yeah, that then rips off the head of the poor doctor. It is still hell of a effective shot of the penis tentacle kind of, kind of holding his severed head there, there in the air, and 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 the blood and the meat chunks just kind of dripping off from it. It's, I would say, definitely the most satisfying imagery of this film from the demented mind. Altogether, I I do feel that that the cinematography in Hellraiser 2, in my opinion, it is some of the best I've seen in in horror films. Uh, I will say this, that I definitely noticed that this film has a lot of shots that have like artistic value to it very much. For example, the shot when Julia is in the house of Dr. Channard, dressed up in white, turns around towards the camera, and on the background you see the handprint on the white wall, and the Julia is wrapped up in bandages. I, I was I was thinking the same image. Yeah, but I don't know if it's so much about the DP here, but maybe more about the... Well, it's a combination of things, but definitely the... The production design and the props, the art department, it's all all playing well together. So there's the Pinhead ver- versus uh, Dr. Chattered. Just before that, Kirsty hands the picture of Pinhead to Pinhead, and then Pinhead remembers that he wasn't actually Pinhead before. They were all human. I'm not the biggest fan of this, at least this physical revelation of seeing the actual human bodies behind the monsters. Once again, this is not surprising coming from me at all, but I feel that it kind of knackers into the mystique. But that would have been okay-ish where the franchise to be ending right here. But now that it carries on with actually Pinhead, then it's kind of like, eh, we already know what you're about. And why in God's name are you continuing doing this? I don't remember what was the character motivation to keep killing. Well, he's still Pinhead and is still in hell, I guess. But it starts to kind of waver, like, eh, I think this character story arc ended already. Kirsty shares a smile with the human pinhead just before he dies, again, in hell. 
Yeah, I, I, I do strongly agree with you on on that notion. I, I, yeah. I too. I, I, one hundred percent feel that when it came to Hellraiser three, Pin, Pinhead was kind of a forcibly inserted and kept in the franchise. Like you made the notion that 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 from from three and upwards, the franchise got 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 milking and lazy and. With that that sentiment, I I would say that you can ex, you can very well see the moment in history when the when the film rights went to Dimension Films. Oh no, infamous Dimension. Yeah, w- w- once again, and it does showcase very heavily in in the type of film that Hellraiser three ended up being. And you also you you see the whole grasping of straws aspect of of them forcibly staying with Pinhead as as the main franchise character in 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 the sense how like what what is the story and what is the excuse for Pinhead once again appearing in 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 Hellraiser 3 the, the whole Elliot Spencer is the man and Pinhead is the demon dynamic that they forcibly now build up in hell in in hell on earth, so, just so that that hell, pinhead as a character finally would have a motivation and finally would have an emotional stake in what happens in the films, and that that's like like to me that that all re- reads reads as a strong evidence for the fact that. Even though Pinhead himself is a magnificent character, he is not some someone on whom you should build up, build a franchise on. Like they're, they're just like the Pinhead you have on these first two films is is basically a bureaucrat of of hell. He's someone who is emotionally removed from what happens in the movie, and because of this, I I do feel that. Hellraiser 2 still handled Pinhead correctly. Yeah. By 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 not really using him, by revealing his backstory and kind of closing his arc through him finally remembering that he once was a human being, just like everybody else. And it it really like I, I would say after the first film, that is kind of the best and pretty much Pretty much all you can do with the character of Pinhead, because there, there, since since he's not he's not like like Freddy Krueger who who is constantly being driven by this need for revenge or or need for need for havoc because he doesn't have that emotional core in his being. He's someone who you can't just you know bring back from film to the from film to film. To do evil things, uh, and you know, if if you have a monster that that you can't use that way, it either forces you to get rid of the monster, like they do in do in Hellraiser Two, where Pinhead gets killed off, or then you just have to be incredibly inventive in in the excuses you use to bring that character back. And there are a lot of horror sequels, mainly the first sequel of any horror franchise, where they instinctively and very understandably start to 
build more flesh around their characters to keep the story going. In some cases, those additions to the character of the antagonist, for example, seem forced, sometimes even not unnecessary, but you can understand why they made that decision. Like Halloween 2, for example. Like, like Halloween 2, <coughs> where it's established that, that Michael has some kind of a psychic need or, or some kind of a deep emotional need to kill his entire family. And he somehow knows that Laurie Strode is his last remaining sister. So he has to target, target Laurie. Yeah. It, it, it worked there. Like, you, you can see that it's been forcibly built, but it still worked there. It doesn't work in, for example, in Halloween 4, where it's where then now now is is Jamie and Binhead once again has that same drive. Now now I have to kill Jamie. Yeah, that 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 force of nature element was what I believe was driving the franchise the best. That it this is just completely without motive. It's it's like the wind. It it just is how it is. But then you give this goals and all that nonsense. Anyway, in Hellraiser 2, I feel that the way that the story was carried is acceptable, it's okay, and I think it completes the story pretty well. And by the end of the film, you feel that that's it. But no, they keep pushing like 10 sequels after. Yeah, and you, you, you can also see that the same effect in, in the sequels. In, in, in a way, how completely they then disregard what happened in Hellraiser 1 and 2. Because Hellraiser 3, it, it, it almost completely forgets the films that happened previously. Hellraiser 4, it, it still tries. It still, still tries to carry on the previous movies within its core, with, with some of the themes that, that that bloodline has, and from mm. from Hellraiser four onwards, they even that attempt is completely lost. Yeah, I felt that Hellraiser three just might be I don't know if, if it's the best after the second one, but definitely after the four, feels it loses its direction. Yeah, it it, it becomes a, it becomes a series of standalone films. That has mm. Pinhead and has has Puzzle Box and has some Hellraiser in it. Not all of them are completely terrible. Like I am willing to defend some individual films there, but you you can notice that the sense of continuation has been lost, and the whole idea that there are these events that have happened before, and there is this. There is this kind of a universe that has these certain themes that that has been that has been more or less lost in in the sequels after Hellraiser Four. So, still for the trivia-minded, there were sources saying that the ending was planned to go a little bit differently in Hellraiser Two when Kirsty and Tiffany run from Janard. Uh, the girls would have run into a doctor and a nurse. And the doctor wants to know what they're doing, and suddenly the doctor and the nurse transform into Pinhead and the female Cenobite. And Kirsten and Tiffany continue their running. The scene was dropped uh, since it was thought that Pinhead appearing as a doctor would kind of confuse the viewers, and because of the special effects didn't turn out so well here. 
but there was a publicist photographer at the set at the time and took photos of the Cenobites dressed as these surgeons for the scene. So some of these photos were used as a VHS or DVD cover art, which set the rumors blazing about this great lost scene and parts of the scene can be seen in some trailers. There's also a reveal of a scene where the chatterer is stopping an elevator with his hand and jumps at Kirsty and Tiffany. And uh, it is my understanding that the lost scene was found on a VHS work print and it was supposed to be released on a Blu-ray release of the film, which was actually released only about a month ago. It's on Amazon, for example, so you can go for it. And I'm not sure if it's now in there as an extra or not, but there's plenty of extras. Well, as the final scene, we get back to the doctor's flat. It's all packed up, and the men are taking care of the doctor's stuff, moving it away, and one of the men gets sucked into the mattress, and a huge wooden ornament tree, or the swinging torture rack, appears out of the mattress. Apparently, the chatterer actor Nicholas Vince, once again, he received a hook to the jaw while filming the scene upon his own request to make it appear a little bit more exciting. Finished by the maggot-eating dragon man with the famous line, What is your pleasure, sir? Perhaps the hokiest effect that they have in the film. I like it. it I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a mixed here. Because the, the effect of, of the torture rack rising from inside the mattress does not work like at all. You, you, you can clearly see how the effect has been combined. And also in the torture rack, there are several uh, there, there are several objects where you clearly can actually see that yeah, th- th- those are rubber masks and plastic toys. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, 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 I like the concept of, of the torture rack or wh- whatever pillar of flesh it's supposed to be. It's, it's, in the end, it, it is supposed to be the same statue that they have in Hellraiser 3 with Pinhead stuck in it. But the, the, the rubber masks, the pla- plastic toys, and overall the quality of the, of the effect of, of the totem rising from, from the mattress, it, to me, it is a bit too much when combined together. It, it's a great idea, but the execution, like the, the, it, it's, it's the last moment in in a marathon run, and then during your last two steps, you kind of stumble. Okay, I felt it was kind of the kind of the topping there, not in the sense of effect wizardry, but there was so many crazy scenes going on that it that, that's it's kind of a proper way. There were a lot of great elements in it. And it did close the film quite effectively with, with the Dragon Man be, being the final face you get. And him saying the line, what's your pleasure, sir? Like It, it closes the film very well. But I... I, I like, you, you, you can even see, see the, the spray paint lines. In, in the totem, As, especially in, oh. in, 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 the, in the DVD Blu-ray version. Like, once again, the goddamn VHS did save <laughs> something, did save some, some of the effects here. 
with, with its crappy image quality, but but with with the Blu-ray or DVD release of the film, you can you can see every single line of paint so clearly that that the hokiness just comes blazing through. It often feels like when you watch a Blu-ray, uh, it it feels like you are watching people playing on a set because you kind of see everything. But also, it is how the apparently the director intended it, this to be seen. So, and I'm fine with that. I kind of I love that <laughs> that clarity. I have no problem of enjoying this these late '80s horror films with the clarity. To to me, it's it's a mixed bag. In in some cases, I strongly feel that that because of the crappy image quality, the VHS version in the end actually enhanced enhances the visual experience, making the film kind of a more e- even more terrifying. Well, yeah, maggot eating dragons, swinging torture racks, and uh, Leviathan symbols hanging in the in the sky of hell. I feel like nothing I've said during this episode about the film makes any goddamn sense. So this is truly a fucked up film experience. Very creative and interesting. And um, definitely something that you have to witness for yourself to kind of get what the hell is going on. Yeah, it, 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 um, in the end it, it comes together in an effect that you really don't see that often. Being a British film production, actually, this was filmed at Pinewood. Okay, favorite performance. In in my end, it goes to Kenneth Graham, who played Dr. Channard. Yeah, that's hard to argue with. Uh, this is a c- classical Shakespearean actor. He delivers these kind of poetic lines really well. Overall performance, really absorbing. He, he does, and he manages to... We kind of really well pull off that the person whose need for knowledge and need for answers pushes him way too far into becoming a monster. Favorite scene? Well, this goes, and this might be a weird one from me, but it goes into that one moment when Cenobites band together to defend Kirsty from Channard. Mm. Not the actual fight itself, but, but that moment. When Binhead finally remembers that he used to be a person and then kind of forming the line with other Cenobites in defense of Kirsty. Okay, I would go with the ripped off head of Dr. Channard in the end. Uh, it's now my most strongest image also of this film. Favorite quote? Ghost, it actually would be Channard's first opening monologue. Goes for fucking ever, forever, but still is great stuff on every line. The mind is a labyrinth, ladies and gentlemen, a puzzle. And while the paths of the brain are plainly visible, its ways deceptively apparent. Its destinations are unknown. Its secrets still secrets. And if we are, if we are honest, it is the lure of the labyrinth that draws to our, to our chosen field. To unlock those secrets. Others have been here before us and have, have left us signs, but we as explorers of the mind must devote our lives and energies to going further, to tread the unknown corridors in order to find ultimately the final solution. We have to see, we have to know. Yeah, that's a good one. 
It's also a bloody long one. I kind of liked all the one-liners of the Janard Cenobite, but maybe I'll just go with his entrance line. And to think, I hesitated. Yeah, Janard most definitely is the kind of a best one-liner guy of the film. That there is a yeah. surprisingly a <laughs> lot of great quotes and one-liners in, in Hellbound. Kind of thought that you would maybe hate these and it would go too much the Roger Moore direction here. Well, then no. again, Roger Moore hasn't played a Cenobite, uh, so... Yeah, and and I I do... Because they use them kind of... A, they spare them for certain characters. And these are characters... Well, mostly Cenobites who all together in, in their expressions are someone's who who say extremely little and they always have this weight on every word they say. Like every yeah. sentence that they mutter, they, they have a meaning and and they aim to use as few words as possible to make their intent known. I actually do think that because of because of these because, because the one-liners are given to the mostly to Cenobites, it actually becomes a strong strong element of the film and it, it becomes one of the film's strengths like that 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 way of speaking is something that helps the Cenobites to become as strong and as as iconic as they as they in in the end ended up being I noticed that too that there is not that much of dialogue and when it's laid out it's clear as day this is one of those very few movies in this podcast where I didn't stop the image hundreds of times to take notes and uh, take quotes down and kind of decipher what the hell is this and how does it connect to that. It's very straightforward and in a way really enjoyable in, in that sense. And it, it is surprising that it is a horror movie that actually shows to you that, that even one-liners can actually be used as a great narrative tool if, if used correctly. Hmm. Like one-liner usually is seen as something that is comedic, and it is there for 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 the humor's sake. Usually, even when when the two of us pick up one-liners in in the podcast, we usually take take the ones that are somehow humorous, where you can somehow either they have a joke in them or you can twist them and use them as as jokes. But <laughs> but but Hellbound kind of. A, it is it is stuck full of one-liners, but well, none of them really kind of a, is is empty or empty of a me of a meaning. Favorite kill, Doctor Channard, if you count it, it as a kill <clears throat> when he's destroyed in hell. Yeah. Also, if you count it uh, as a kill, my pick is the self-cutting man. Okay. Who? Oh. Yeah. Who? In the end actually does get killed so but yeah that 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 image of the poor patient succumbed into his hallucinations and just you know constantly and repeatedly cutting himself with the razor blade it it still is like it it, it was one of the one of the images that most strongly stuck to my mind when I originally saw the film. And I still think that that is one of the images that mostly speaks out and best describes Hellbound. Hmm. Well, if you were given a box that would open you to view Hellraiser 3, would you do it? I already have that in the, in the sense that I have the VHS <laughs> copy. Oh, 
still haven't burned it. No, I I, right. I paid good money for it. So I <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna bloody well keep it. Twenty years ago. It it, it it also is is you know essential part of of my my yeah. four, four film Hel- VHS Hellraiser release box set, which oh, has oh. has the, the the has the face of Pinhead in in the backlinings of the VHS covers. So I can't burn it. <laughs> okay, first shot that comes to mind would be. That we that that shot from the side when now Cenobite Doctor Strannard is traveling through hell w- with his weird penis tentacle. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. That when the when once again the head is cut in half. That is some great A material, and it's also my favorite shot as it happens. And for you, sir, it it would be from from that. Instead about defending, defending curse this scene, that one wide shot that shows you all the four Cenobites after they have kind of formed that line of defense. And we have one new quickie here to surprise you, favorite moment of erotica in the film. Okay, just kidding. God damn it. <clears throat> we, 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 we just, we just watched Hellraiser 2. We are not, we don't need to actually travel to hell itself. <laughs> what took you out? Um... Um, nothing really. If if I would have to pinpoint something, it it, it would be that that torture rack me totem effect during the last five seconds of the film. Well, there was a very 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 short moment in time where I actually didn't drop out of the film, but I was starting to feel okay. This st- like I mentioned that this film needs to start moving on into some direction right now. Here to grab the viewer. It's the moment when we cut from Julia and Channard wandering around in the in the endless hallways and Kirsty and Tiffany doing the same. I don't know, I was just getting more flashbacks of different horror films. In this case, it was taking something to the direction of the goddamn abysmally terrible sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street. Maybe like Which are not as bad as you make them out to be. I've, I, Lord, I have some deep disgust for some of those sequels. Don't tell me that we're going to watch them. <laughs> well, it's it's completely up to you, man. <laughs> I, 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 I most definitely am not going to push yet another franchise for us to marathon through. So it's going to be the masochist in me who is going to do that eventually, <laughs> probably. Yeah, what pulled you in? It would be from the very opening of, of, of the film when when Elliot Spencer is has just opened the box and... He's starting to turn into Pinhead. And there are all these shots of his head being sliced slowly open and him screaming in pain. And then there is that one moment when there is the extreme close-up to his his mouth and teeth. And you see that he's actually smiling at this point. And that kind of a that that moment when when you notice that that the character is is changing and he's He's now actually starting to get pleasure and enjoyment out of this extreme pain and torment. To me, that was actually the first time when this movie really clued me in. Funny how many parallels are actually here when compared to the first one. Like like the first one, this opens with the box, somebody trying to decrypt it, and then getting fucked, basically. 
it is in 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 many ways this is very similar film to to the original not not in in the most kind of obvious most surface level because the, these are make no mistake these are very two very different type of movies but but upon a closer inspection there are a lot of elements and a lot of ways how these actually mirror each other there was a lot of things that pulled me in but if something to pick from all of those those this visual extravaganza explosion who oh. once again it would go into the direction of uh, Channard when he's approaching his victims for example in this hospital room and we get a close up of his face and he's doing this Arr! that's some creepy creepy stuff right there what would you change in the film scissors of the sacrilege you know i i actually wouldn't wouldn't change anything in the film i wasn't too big fan of the revelations of the background of pinhead but once again i can see why it was done <laughs> but at the same I, time uh, maybe I, I, I should yeah yeah i i on my end i actually did like the revelation quite a lot oh maybe i would remove the moment where we see everyone's faces thought it was humanizing these monsters a little bit too much and then again, I, I, once again, I'm, I'm completely on the opposite end. I, I really think that they really did deserve to be humanized as they were. And I, I, I yeah. think that, that that last shot of the Chatterer, which shows that originally he was just some little kid, mm. was once again kind of really hammering down the themes of the film and, and how, how this need for extreme experiences is something that is not simply tied into you know you being a man or you being at certain age or any of these surface level things but instead it's something that is much deeper inside your psyche and because of that it's much more dangerous that or the poor pastor just was playing with it and wasn't expecting to have any any pleasure pleasures out of the or any that kind of pleasures from solving the box. That anyway. yeah, it 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 once again goes in the direction of where, where how much of the Hellraiser lore is Carlyle Parker's vision and how much is because of people who came after him. Because people not completely accidentally without any kind of a desire to open the box opening the box or finding some pathway completely by random accident into the hell. That is actually something that became a pretty big point of, of the Hellraiser mythos in the end. Mm. It, it, it has been a running theme in many of the Hellraiser stories, where, where a character simply ends up in situation and, and without even knowing at all and without having any kind of a deeper drive to even try to achieve anything, just completely accidentally one happens to open one of the puzzles that leads into hell. You really know you're watching Hellbound Hellraiser 2 when... The bugs are bugging you, and you start to think that they are forming a maze. You really know you're watching Hellbound Hellraiser 2 when you will keep processing it for a few days. Three adjectives to describe the film. Mine would be dreamlike, visionary, and wild. Visionary, head-busting, 
and fucking dark. That it is. Which is probably the reason why I have voiced out before that I don't like these films. But, you know, as I have mentioned in the previous Hellraiser episode, I have kind of changed my direction with these two originals in the sense that I do enjoy them, actually. <laughs> and But they are not something that you can pop on, like every other... No, the, the, these are films that are best reserved for special okay, occasions when you kind of are in the mindset that you are ready to watch these. Yeah, because you will be a little bit exhausted after watching this. Henrik, would you recommend Hellbound Hellraiser 2? I most definitely would. I I do think that it's kind of a groundbreaking in the way how it deals with, with the subject matter of hell. The, the first films are together kind of a being revolutionary in in that sense. And I, I do think that this also kind of... It, this has some themes that I, I think are very deeply tackled on and it, that some even hit very close to home for me personally. And I'm 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 in the kind of in the disgusting minority of of Hellraiser fans who actually think that as as much as I love the first the original film, I I still kind of think that this is even better than the original Hellraiser. Okay, well this is this is really shocking in this podcast, but I have to jump into the same wagon with you and say that even if it's a guilty pleasure or whatnot, I feel that. This has a lot more variety, many more things to to chew on. I feel that it's more relaxed in many areas, less restrained, like in the soundtrack and the visuals, and it's just having more fun with the elements that were established before. It's it was well well planned out. It seems there are many new uh, angles that are very in- inventive, and characters like the Doctor Channard, which I enjoy so much. I enjoy the visuals of the hell. It's. I even think that the dialogue is more enjoyable in this one. It has this kind of a, as mentioned, kind of a what the fuck element to it when you get to the hell scenes, and uh, there are many things that are not fleshed out, and that's understandable, and that's okay. It's what it's doing on purpose, I feel, and I feel that the the area where they are playing, it's of uh, obviously there's more room to roam around in. In the original, in the first one, you're just inside the same ho- same house, basically, most of the time. I feel that we're having a lot more fun here. I feel that it's it's a good sequel, and it it works. And recommendation, and uh, the best Hellraiser for me. Yeah, it, it, it manages to expand the elements of, of the first one. Yeah. What, what, what was presented to you first time in, in the original, this takes those elements and it takes them further. In in a way, it brings them home and showcases them to you in, in their home turf. Yeah, my understanding from the reviews of the film is that the critics were not very much, I guess, fans of the, the same things that we are willing to, I don't know, overlook, but accept and maybe take a different kind of a take on it. The fact that we go to hell and there's a lot of elements that are left unexplored further like the ghosts or the, the the whatever they were on these platforms these dead people so that's what the some of the reviewers were saying that this is uh, something that the, the film is starting to lose direction maybe too many points of interest for me no 
I, I kind of felt that a lot of the critics were kind of too fixed on on the visual violence and the amount of blood and blood and gore that gore that you see in the film and that they kind of got got stuck stuck with that and only in the end only saw saw the violence and saw the visual elements of the of the film and kind of missed the themes all right anything else or should i hang the lab coat on the wall I guess we can just, you know, hang our coats at this point. We have such websites to show you after all, such as our Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. That's the show, boys and girls and in-betweeners. See you next week. Until then. And uh, it is my understanding that there was a VHS really, uh, and there was supposed to be a, there, uh, yeah, no need. VHS work would.